they can present with recurrent wide tachycardia right in front of you. Every patient that presents with an ICD shock should be considered as a possible electrical storm. Are they stable versus unstable? Electricity is our number one treatment. You really need to start thinking about intubation and sedation. Patients we see in Baltimore occasionally have compliance issues. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm so happy that you're joining us here for this podcast. Let me bring in my amazing EM, IM, and critical care co-hosts, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Gentlemen, so happy to gather with you this evening for this recording. How are you doing? Doing fine in New Orleans. Weather's finally starting to get cool, and COVID's not a big issue for us at the moment. Sounds great, Peter. How about you, Rob? Pretty much the same. We are doing less fires, although they are still popping up occasionally. So the air is better, and in terms of COVID, we are stable. Outstanding. Both good news from you. And John? Doing well in Philadelphia. We actually have a little bit of a different circumstance, I think, challenge coming forward and some interesting things. So we've had another hospital closure in West Philadelphia. Mercy Hospital is closing down. And so with that resource contraction, we're trying to work out how to manage a lot of new patients that will be coming towards the University of Pennsylvania health system. So that is the challenge. But again, not necessarily something we're all unfamiliar with, but certainly one that's facing us right now. And dealing with some of these specialty patients in particular will be quite a challenge. Agreed. Well, let us know how things go when we chat for our next podcast. Things here in Baltimore are doing pretty well, as I think, also in terms of COVID numbers. We were chatting ahead of this recording. I think all of us in our four settings are seeing lower numbers. I think for us, I can say that While we certainly dipped from an emergency department census consistent with the rest of the country during the pandemic to about 55 to maybe 60% pre-COVID volume, I feel that most of that has returned. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel that our acuity was already high, but it seems to be even a little bit higher. We are getting sick and sick patients. And with all of the movement, all of the protocols we had for the pandemic, it certainly led to a resurgence in ED boarding and hospital capacity constraints. Now, to that end, we are very excited to record this podcast for you all because it is a non-COVID topic. We wanted to move outside of the COVID umbrella. We've talked about it for seven, eight months, some of you nine months that you've been confronting front lines of this. And we wanted to get a non-COVID topic and returning to our amazing co-host, John Greenwood, as he works in the cardiac ICU. And we're going to hit on a cardiology topic. So John, what do you have planned for us this podcast? Yeah, Mike. So this is a topic I think it's always good to refresh on. And we're going to talk about the patient who presents with electrical storm. And some of you may say, well, what is electrical storm? And others are like, remember that last patient you had who presented to your emergency department with problems with arrhythmias. And we're going to review an article that was in the European Heart Journal of Acute Cardiovascular Care by Astrid Hendricks, as well as Tomas Silitorak, published in 2018, titled The Treatment of Electrical Storm, an Educational Review. And this was a topic that is near and dear to my heart, as Mike said, working in a cardiac and cardiac surgery ICU. But these patients can present in many different ways. They can present 
looking really, really sick coming in in continuous VT. And other ones can present looking quite well, but be very, very sick and can turn on a dime. They can present after having multiple ICD shocks at home and then come in in completely stable blood pressure and rhythm. They can present with hemodynamic instability, or they can present with recurrent wide tachycardia right in front of you. Because this is a kind of uncommon presenting illness, it's probably important that we readily recognize it and treat these patients aggressively. Now, effective management can often be pretty complex and involve multiple antiarrhythmic medications, suppression of sympathetic tone, often involves device management, in some cases, emergent cath lab disposition, and sometimes even leading aggressively to mechanical circulatory support. So with this, the breadth of treatment options that are available, it's a good time to go through a review of this. So in the discussion, we're going to talk about how we're going to start with these patients who present with complaints or concerns for VT that fit into the stable box, but we'll also address those patients who come in that are refractory to medical treatment or in frank shock towards the end. So maybe the best place to start as we approach this topic of electrical storm, Rob, why don't you walk us through the definition of electrical storm and maybe some of the background mechanisms that can lead to this really, really challenging diagnosis? Okay, thanks, John. So the most commonly accepted definition of an electrical storm is three or more separate arrhythmia episodes leading to ICD shocks over a 24-hour time period. And these episodes must be separate, where each episode is terminated for at least five minutes by an ICD shock. And this is slightly different than persistent or sustained VT, where the ventricular tachycardia resumes within five minutes of successful ICD therapy. So in terms of what is sustained VT defined as, it's defined as any ventricular tachycardia that lasts for more than 30 seconds or is symptomatic. And non-sustained ventricular tachycardia lasts for less than 30 seconds and is asymptomatic. So in terms of mechanisms of electrical storm, they can be multifactorial, but they can include progressive ventricular scarring and left ventricular remodeling in patients with advanced heart failure or patients who've had a scarring from a large previous MI A second mechanism is volume overload causing ischemia from the overstretched ventricular wall. And a third mechanism is excessive sympathetic hyperactivity during heart failure exacerbations. But the bottom line is that every patient that presents with an ICD shock should be considered as a possible electrical storm. While the patient may only report one known event, recent asymptomatic ventricular tachycardia events may have occurred and they may have been treated successfully by the ICD or pacemaker. Gotcha. Thanks, Rob. That was an awesome review. And I think we've all had this patient who comes in with a concern of having an ICD shock. But yeah, I think the pearl here is that while they may report having only one shock, there are other mechanisms that these ICDs can produce to cause a asymptomatic VT to stop. So this is why it's so important to get your electrophysiologist called and notified about these patients when they come into the ED, because it might appear that this patient's very well sitting in front of you, but while they haven't been on a monitor at home, they can quickly resume VT and decompensate pretty quickly. 
So, Mike, let's dip into maybe the treatment of electrical storm. We've identified maybe this patient group that's high risk in the ED that may look well, but may also have an episode of sustained VT in front of you. Walk us through how you're going to approach this patient in terms of thoughts of treatment. What would you do? Thanks, John. Rob, you did a great job in terms of definition and mechanisms of action. Now, in terms of treatment, I think regardless of our location, whether in the emergency department, in the ICU, some even acute care unit on the floor, as we've learned, as we've been taught, the first question really is, are they stable versus unstable? And unstable patients, we're going to go ahead with synchronized cardioversion. And we typically define unstable with patients who are in active VT, and they may have hypotension. So traditionally, MAPs less than 65 millimeters of mercury, systolic blood pressures less than 90, or perhaps they're complaining of chest pain that sounds like ischemic chest pain. They may have shortness of breath or hypoxemia. They could be altered from or perfusion due to the VT or some other clinical evidence of malperfusion, looking at their extremities, their cool, mottled, cyanotic, maybe a levito type of pattern. We are going to be shocking those patients with synchronized cardioversion. And the typical dose is gonna start off at 200 joules. Now from a quick pearl standpoint, when you're placing the pads, if someone does have an AICD or a pacemaker, then in general, you're gonna avoid placing the defibrillator pads over those devices as it can in fact affect the ability of that device to function can adversely affect the effectiveness of when those internal or implanted devices actually deliver a shock. More commonly, and it's my personal preference, I like the AP pad positioning. I find that that does tend to be a little bit more efficacious with cardioversion in contrast to the more traditional AP and lateral placement of pads. Now, outside of that unstable patient, more often we're going to be seen and confronted with the stable patient who has got intermittent episodes perhaps of sustained VT, so as Rob said, greater than 30 seconds. In those cases, we're going to consider a few things. First, well, what's causing it? So unfortunately, in most cases, we're not going to have a clear etiology for their electrical storm, but it is important to keep a few things in mind and consider them on your differential. The most common etiology or potentially reversible cause is in fact ischemic ventricular tachycardia and that's due to no surprise some type of flow limiting coronary lesion. Also fairly common are electrolyte imbalances and generally when electrolytes are fairly low perhaps these patients existing cardiac disease they're on diuretics they've had some other medication change and specifically we're going to look for hypokalemia. Hypomagnesemia maybe hypocalcemia as you would expect they may cause prolongation of the QT and ultimately lead to polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. So thinking about ischemia, thinking about electrolyte imbalances, perhaps the patient has a history of congestive heart failure and they're presenting with a CHF exacerbation or they've had some change to their medication or no surprise for you guys, but the patients we see in Baltimore occasionally have compliance issues with medication. So thinking about medication non-compliance. And lastly, if they've had a new pacemaker place that has been associated with ventricular storm or VT storm. So thinking about and asking about how new is that particular device. 
And one last pearl before I'm going to turn things over to Peter for medical management is in those patients who are coming in an electrical storm and they are continuously receiving AICD shocks where you're thinking it's not efficacious and you then need to move to more effective means of terminating the electrical storm. We're going to go ahead and place that magnet. Recall placing the magnet over the AICD will discontinue any type of internal attempts that the device will have for defibrillation. So. John, I think those are some quick pearls. Do you want to turn things over to Peter and perhaps you can take us through medication management? Go for it, Peter. Well, you know, just to emphasize again, electricity is our number one treatment, particularly if the patient's unstable. But if we do have the luxury of having either a stable patient or where electricity is not really being the answer, we can think about three main groups of medicines. The first group, the big player in this, is going to be beta blocker therapy. And so beta blockers are really the key role in the management of electrical storm, and they block the sympathetic receptors that are triggering this VT storm. Frequently, the first step, the really initial step in the treatment of electrical storm in low-risk patients and those without cardiogenic shock, that's our move. That's our go-to agent. It's going to be beta blocker. Now, the risk factor or the pearl for you guys to hold on to, there are high risk factors that signal that you really shouldn't be using a beta blocker in the emergency setting. And those risk factors are age greater than 70, acute ischemia on our EKG, a systolic blood pressure that's less than 120. So not 110, not 100, not 90, less than 120, and a heart rate greater than 110 beats per minute. Remember, if we have these patients that we already think are sick, they can be sicker still if we inappropriately give a beta blocker in those cases. Again, age greater than 70, acute ischemia on EKG, systolic blood pressure less than 120 millimeters of mercury, and a heart rate greater than 110. So which drugs are we going to use? Typically, the quickest agent that we're going to find stock in our EDs is going to be metoprolol, and it's most commonly used. You're going to start with low doses, and that's five milligrams IV, and that can be given every five minutes up to three subsequent dosages. Let's say that didn't work. The next move, you could go to propranolol, and some of you may not have metoprolol, but have propranolol, particularly in the European countries. And so propranolol is a lipophilic unselective beta blocker that penetrates the CNS. It's been found to be effective in patients not responding to metoprolol or to amiodarone. And again, we know it most classically for those patients that aren't in electrical storm, but are in thyroid storm. And then thyroid storm, it reduces the conversion of T4 to T3. But when we're giving this, we're giving you this one milligram IV over one minute, and that can be repeated to a total of three times as well. Now, third line for beta blockade is going to be esmolol. And remember that this is going to be a mixed drip. And you're going to go 500 milligrams per kilogram as a bolus IV with the infusion then starting at 50 milligrams per kilogram per minute. Now, the benefit here with esmolol is you can usually see how the patient will respond quickly after the bolus because it really has a short half-life and you'll be able to see its effect It'll go away relatively quickly if the patient has a poor hemodynamic response. So it doesn't hang around very long. 
but it's not readily available in most EDs. It's going to require either a pharmacy mix or your great ED nurses to mix it up. So that's the beta blockers, metoprolol, propranolol, and then esmolol. Next step would be lidocaine or procainamide. So they're class one sodium channel blockers. They're antiarrhythmics. For lidocaine, this is predominantly, in general, the preferred for patients that have ischemia associated with their VTAC. And then during this ischemic VTAC, the altered cardiac membrane potential, as well as the pH reduction, increases the rate of drug binding, making lidocaine a bit more effective in terminating ventricular arrhythmias. The dose here for lidocaine is going to be one mg per kg IV every five minutes, up to three mg per kg total. The infusion can be given then, if you have a response, at one to three migs per minute. Let's say lidocaine's not your drug or it's not working, then you can reach for procainamide, right? And for procainamide, this is, again, for patients with a recurrent stable VTAC, not in the setting of acute MI. So we're not looking at this with acute ischemia here. And it's given IV procainamide. has been shown to be superior to lidocaine for terminating VTAC. And this is the ProCameo study published in 2017, compared procainamide versus amiodarone in patients with ventricular tachycardia storm without acute heart failure and severely depressed LV less than 30%. Again, it's a complicated dosing. It's 20 to 50 migs per minute over 30 minutes. So we're going to have to devote a neuron to that or pull that up on a pocket brain. And so the infusion is one to four migs per minute following that. And then we're looking, lastly, at amiodarone. This is a class 3 agent. It's a calcium channel blocker that commonly works best in patients with known structural heart disease. These are people post-MI who have scarring and have those challenges. The dose here is a bolus, 150 milligrams. You're going to give that IV over 10 minutes. And you're going to follow that bolus by an infusion of one milligram per minute. I think it's important to note that the incidence of IV amiodarone refractory electrical storm is approximately 30%. So it's important to have alternative treatments readily available or in backup for these patients. And that pretty much concludes what we're going to do from a drug standpoint. Wow, Peter, that was incredible summary. It was jam-packed with pearls. And so <laughs> in order to keep things simple for me, I think I'm going to try to summarize some of those that you said, just because there was so much good stuff there. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but if we're going to start with beta blockers, we want to start in those low-risk patients. And they may not be in electrical storm at the time. They might have a regular sinus heart rhythm, but are at high risk for basically going into shock. If you do treat them with beta blockers, those are older patients over 70, have acute ischemia, have a lower systolic blood pressure. And I think the point here with the systolic less than 120 or heart rate greater than 110 would mean that they likely have a low EF and are compensating with that high heart rate. So blocking them down, like you said, in a patient who's compensated with that high heart rate, probably not such a good idea. Certainly, we can use metoprolol, propranolol. The esmolol is a great option because it is so rapid on, rapid off. I love that. And that initial bolus dose of 500 mics per kilo with 50 mic per kilo per minute drip afterwards. Certainly, in these medications that we're not using often, if there's a clinical pharmacist available, it's 
always wonderful to get them involved as soon as possible to help us dose these things appropriately. I think for the class one medications, I think the biggest pearl I took away there was the patients with ischemic VT start with lidocaine and those with recurrent stable VT that's non-ischemic consider procainamide as the Procamio study showed us as opposed to amiodarone. Now, amiodarone is something that we often use and it might be best in those patients with structural heart disease. So maybe who had a previous MI with a known scar or an accessory pathway, maybe amiodarone is the right medication there. So great, great summary, great pearls there. And I'm definitely going to go over that one or two more times just to keep it fresh in my brain. That's a great, great review. Well, Rob, how about that patient who maybe is not going in and out of VT, but you walk into the room and you look up at the monitor, you get called to the room even because the telemonitor has shown that this patient is now in persistent VT that's refractory to all of these medications that we've thought about and maybe prescribed one or two, but despite that in persistent VT, where do we go from here? How do we manage this really, really sick patient? Yeah, John. So in patients who are not responding to medical treatment or who are presenting with worsening shock, you really need to start thinking about intubation and sedation. This can be a huge help by addressing a number of potential electrical storm triggers, such as decreasing sympathetic tone. You're going to reduce pain that they have with cardioversion from cardioversion attempts or the ICD shocks. It's also going to help you reduce myocardial ischemia and oxygen demand once you sedate and take over their work of breathing. Now, you should consider all of these intubations to be high-risk intubations with potential for major drops in blood pressure. And therefore, you should have vasopressors at the bedside or already running to prevent peri-intubation arrest. These are going to be high-risk intubations, so you really need to have those vasopressors going and or available to push right away. In terms of sedation and analgesia, I would start with standard short-acting opioids like fentanyl, which is a great med in this case. It's going to reduce your sympathetic hyperactivity, and it's going to provide analgesia without a lot of negative inotropic effects. In terms of non-opioid sedation, you have your usual options and preferences, and there's not a lot of evidence to recommend one med over another but you should really certainly consider medication side effects when you're starting these adjunctive sedation therapies. So benzodiazepines are probably going to be your front line to add to fentanyl. They have minimal negative hemodynamic effects. Propofol has been reported to perhaps suppress electrical storm, but remember propofol does have a lot of negative inotropic effects, a lot worse than benzodiazepines in general. And so you might wind up having a worsening cardiogenic shock and a drop in blood pressure in these patients. So again, when these patients are presenting with refractory VT, you really do need to start thinking about intubating them and sedating them. It can help the situation a lot. And then it's a high-risk intubation and you'd be prepared to start a vasopressor or have a vasopressor at hand. Great. Great thoughts, Rob. And, you know, I, I have read this multiple times, and most of this is case series about propofol and the negative inotropic effects, but it can be real. So, you know, I know we talk a lot here on CCPM on starting with propofol and avoiding benzodiazepines, but certainly in this patient population, it might be the best choice right up front, at least, as you're trying to 
reduce that sympathetic surge that might be triggering your VT. So excellent points. Now, Mike, certainly we've dealt with some of the airway issues and tried to reduce this patient's catecholamine load, but certainly hemodynamics can be tricky in these patients. Mike, anything you're thinking about in terms of how to manage the hemodynamics in this patient with maybe incessant or refractory VT? Yeah, just a few things to add to this really, really great discussion, John. You know, in terms of all the medications that Peter talked about in managing patients, many of their side effects are, in fact, hypotension. With this intubation or potential intubation for refractory storm or refractory VT and the high risk, we're going to be thinking about pressors and maybe inotropes. With all these medications, I'm probably less likely to rely on intermittent non-invasive blood pressure measurements and move more towards an arterial line or an invasive method to monitor blood pressure. And, you know, we have pretty much two locations, radial artery and femoral arterial line. And depending on how much vasopressors you're using, depending on the patient's circulatory status, the accuracy even of a radial art line may be diminished in patients who are really severely clamped down or they have significant cardiogenic shock. So probably in many of these cases, I'll lean towards a femoral arterial line. And the other advantage of using the femoral line in these patients as they may need mechanical circulatory support, you've got access to the femoral artery that can then be stepped up and converting them over to mechanical circulatory support. Now, speaking of any additional therapies or mechanical circulatory support, I think by the time we've gotten this far down in the algorithm where we're using multiple medications, we may need to intubate them, and we've got them on pressors, really calling for help. We need to recruit our colleagues, whether that be in cardiology, cardiac surgery, our cardiac cath lab folks. As I've mentioned, the most common etiology is ischemic. VT. So I think a call out to your interventionalist or your cardiac cath lab is very reasonable for help in managing these patients. And then depending on your institution, if you're at a place that has ECMO capabilities, this may be something to consider, especially if you're having trouble terminating the recurrent VT or just simply electrical storm with the medications and or cardioversion for these patients. So I think femoral A-line, certainly I'm, or I'm moving to A-line with likely to choose the femoral location over the radial and then calling for help and then consideration of ECMO or even an impella device to help these patients. Great, Mike. And I know there is some emerging literature largely related to other methods of defibrillation. Peter emphasized, and rightly so, electricity is our friend here. Have any of you guys in the past used a method of double sequential defibrillation or have any experience with that outside of the literature? If not, I can say that I personally have done this a couple of times and patients transferred to my unit in VT storm and in my small N of three patients been successful three times. The first time the nurses kind of looked at me side-eyed because, you know, they don't read the literature, I guess, in the same way that we do, or maybe the same literature all the time, but thought I was nuts when I asked for two machines and, and two sets of pads, but I quickly made them believers. And so I am a proponent of this double sequential technique, which is essentially it's not challenging, but just basically putting the pads on AP and AP lateral and one, two, 200, 200. Rob, did you have something to add there? 
I would add two cases to your N of three to make it five. And yeah, in both of those times that we tried it, it, it worked. Yeah. And the theory here is like perhaps that the shocks you're providing with one vector aren't exactly the right one. So perhaps adding a second vector of energy could reduce or terminate that VT episode. So something to think about in that refractory patient as you're advancing down some of these advanced treatments. So I think in summary, I think electrical storm and persistent VT are complicated. And these conditions often require lots of specialists. So timely and effective consultation and treatment are going to be important here. As Peter said, lidocaine's preferred medication with ischemic VT, that was a great pearl. And that is, as Mike said, the most common cause of reversible VT storm. Beta blocker therapy may be appropriate for that stable patient and is probably in that one who's low risk, our first choice. But certainly if that patient has early evidence of shock or is developing shock, as Rob mentioned, early intubation, sedation to re reduce that sympathetic surge is the appropriate and kind of mandatory next step in this complex patient management situation. And lastly, Mike, I love this. And, you know, I'm finding I'm placing a lot more proximal femoral lines for access for blood pressure monitoring. We don't work in an operating room where we have stable critical illness, if that makes sense, that a radial art line might be reasonable approach that we often are faced with the sickest of the sick. So proximal central venous and arterial access, I'm leaning more on than I necessarily had thought about in the past. So with that being said, maybe just one more pearl or one more takeaway that you guys had from this. Mike, let's start with you. Any other major pearls or takeaways? I think you summarized that outstandingly well, John. I don't know that I really have much to add more than what we've talked about, you know, in terms of the patient presenting unstable. While they may not be overtly hypotensive with a low MAP or low systolic, assess mental status, assess signs of malperfusion, because those can be in and of themselves an indication to go right to synchronized cardioversion, not simply just waiting to see if the MAP is less than 65 or the systolic is less than 90. Love it. Peter, anything else? One last take home. Sure. So again, we mentioned this with the utility of amiodarone. As we see more and more structural heart disease, the indication for amiodarone is clear there. So remember that pearl. Great. And Rob, one more. Send us home. I don't have any major things to add. The only thing that I would add that comes up is that sometimes providers are reticent to perform CPR on these patients. They're afraid that they're going to get shocked and stuff. And you can reassure everybody that you will be fine, that, you know, with standard gloves and so forth, you're not really going to feel much, if anything, if the ICD happens to go off while your hands are on the patient. Awesome point, Rob. Well, Mike, that was our summary of an electrical storm. I look forward to doing some more cardiac critical care topics in the next few podcasts. And we look forward, John, to you leading us through yet another amazing discussion. That was great, gentlemen. A huge amount of pearls. John, you mentioned it, and I, for one, am going to be going back to review all those medications and their indications that Peter did an outstanding job reviewing. Thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast here on the management of Electrical Storm. Couldn't be happier that you're taking the time to listen to us. Please let us know if you have any questions. Just shoot us an email through our website and we'll shoot you back our feelings and responses to your questions. 
It's time to wrap the things up for this podcast here on CCPEM. Once again, I'm Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.